Before we start today, I want to let you know that this episode contains discussions of child abuse. Today we continue our series on the way family courts treat cases involving allegations of domestic abuse. In this third episode of our series, we're focusing on an obscure legal theory called parental alienation, how it's invaded and some say completely warped the way judges make decisions on child custody. When that label comes up, it means that one parent is wrongly driving a wedge or alienating the children from the other parent. It is much more subjective than objective because there is no scientific or objective means of diagnosing it. So it's whatever a professional says it is. A professional comes in and says this is alienation. That's what you've got. And there's no way to prove it wrong. From the San Francisco Public Press, you're listening to Civic, where we investigate the policies and institutions that govern our lives. I'm Sylvie Sturm. So it was last fall when the team here at Civic decided that we wanted to do this story that was about VG's reporting on abuse in family court. VG Sundaram is a colleague at the San Francisco Public Press, and her series of articles on the way domestic abuse and child abuse victims are treated in family court were really horrific. So when I started hearing about these injustices, I really wanted to continue that reporting and go where VG's reporting left off because this is really the kind of story that made me want to be a journalist. I've always had this sense of outrage over injustice. Like, even when I was four years old, I remember being at a park and my mother and I were sitting on a park bench, and all of a sudden my sister comes running up to us. She's crying her eyes out, and she tells me that these boys at the slide won't let her play. So I was outraged. I got up, I stomped over there through the sandbox, ran up to the boys, and I said, leave my sister alone. They just took off. Instead of bullying me, they decided that they weren't going to face up to me. So I was like, yeah, this is what happens when you stand up to a bully. But it was only after this incident, years later, that my mother told me she was standing right behind me that day. In fact, my mom always had my back. I think that's where I got my confidence. It's a lot easier to stand up to intimidation when you've got a fierce defender, a mama bear, on your side. So as I reported on this story, I kept wondering, what if she hadn't been allowed to protect me? What if someone more powerful than both of us actually threatened to jail her if she did? That may sound impossible, But that happens all the time. And that's what I discovered while investigating this story. The more I uncovered, the deeper into this twisted, dark rabbit hole I went. I'd spent nights doom-scrolling news stories and social media posts with titles like, I was accused of parental alienation for protecting my girl from her dad. He found a therapist to say that our daughter had a false memory of abuse despite me having the medical records to show that she had the fractured elbow. They said, no, this is mother coaching you to say the abuse. Court-ordered program destroys family and lacks oversight, mom claims. You want to protect your children and keep them safe, but the family court isn't looking after the children's best interests. 
They were taken from their mom to rebond with their dad. It didn't go well. I entered the family court system when I was four years old after disclosing to my mother that my father was abusing me. Instead of protecting me, our judge sentenced me to eight more years of molestation, physical and mental abuse, and hell. For eight years, every single member of the family court system that my mother, her attorneys, and experts pleaded to to save me, accused her of alienating me and telling me what to say. I noticed that the same phrase kept coming up over and over again. Parental alienation. Parental alienation. Parental alienation. Parental alienation. Parental alienation. It's a legal strategy used in family court, a theory that a parent can brainwash their child into making false accusations of abuse against the other parent. So let's say Mary is divorcing Joe, and she tells the judge that their daughter told her that Joe's been abusing her. Joe's lawyer will use this parental alienation theory to claim that Mary made it all up to turn their daughter against their father. And if the judge buys it, which happens a lot, based on that conclusion, the judge will deduce that Mary is the actual abuser because she's manipulating her daughter into telling lies. And so the judge decrees that for the safety of the child, custody should go to Joe, even though the daughter says she's being abused by him. There's a crazy background to this parental alienation theory. Who came up with it, the twisted logic it takes to flip the tables on abuse allegations, and how massively popular it's become. But first, I want to focus on the impact of these decisions, because there's a problem. There are a ton of these kids who are all grown up, and they say the judge got it wrong. As soon as I began reporting on this story, we got a landslide of DMs in the Civic Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook accounts. Then I started getting texts from my sources letting me know about another case and another case and another case. I also heard from people whose allegations of abuse were ignored when they were kids. That's how I got to know Allie Cable. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good, thanks. She's a soft-spoken, friendly 20-year-old woman, a pre-med student in neuroscience at NYU. Ali exposes the trauma of bad family court decisions by sharing her own experiences. She's part of an organization called Center for Judicial Excellence. They're all about changing the justice system to protect kids from bad family court decisions. For Ali, it all started when her parents divorced. She was about 13, and her sister was 11. He would tell my sister and I that, like, our mom didn't love us, and that that's why she moved away to Nashville when she remarried my stepfather. And, you know, he would say all of those things to try to manipulate us. And then he was also physically and sexually abusive to my sister and myself. And I really, like saw how angry he was at my mom and how he kind of took it out on my sister and myself. I remember like I would like have to barricade my door at night so that I would feel safe enough to fall asleep. Custody arrangements were still being hashed out in family court. So that gave Allie the chance to tell the grown-ups 
who were supposed to help her about the abuse. When I was in eighth grade, I shared with our therapist and our guardian ad litem that our father was abusing me and my sister. And they didn't want to hear it at all. They just said, oh, you're just saying that so that you can move with your mom to Nashville. And I, you know, I, I, that really shut me down a lot. And my, my mom tried to kind of advocate for my sister and me in court and, and with the therapist and guardian ad litem, but they just, they didn't really want to hear that at all. And she, she also was getting shut down by them. Allie's dad and his lawyer flipped it around. They claimed that Allie's mother was manipulating their daughters into telling lies about their dad. So now it's just really just lawyers diagnosing with it. And they actually bring in expert witnesses. And I hesitate to say expert. Like the one in our case, Robert Evans, I never met him in my life. He actually called in to testify from Florida. And like, I had never met him. My mom had never met him. He was just hired by my father to testify and say that we were being alienated. And the judge bought it. The judge decided that Allie's mother was the actual abuser. So the judge ordered that Allie and her sister have no contact with their mother for three months. But that was just the beginning. Their rules actually were that we weren't allowed, I mean, we didn't have any phones or anything, but we weren't allowed to call our mom or talk to her or anyone that she knew. And my sister and I actually completely followed that rule. But it was just, the no contact order was just arbitrarily extended because because they wanted to. They actually didn't give us any reason for that. And we were actually very lucky with it only being seven months. I know other people that have like had it for years and, and it's still going. It's true. There are tons of parents who haven't seen their child for years after raising concerns about child abuse. I heard the same stories over and over again from women who reached out to me on social media. It's so common that some family lawyers actually advise their clients not to talk about their fears of abuse because it's so likely to backfire. Why are judges so quick to believe that a child could get brainwashed into telling horrible lies about a loving parent, rather than what seems more obvious, to me at least, that there's actually abuse going on? For some clarity, I turn to Tina Swithin. She helps parents struggling in family court to protect their child from an abuser. She's seen how hard it is to convince a judge that a child is being sexually abused by a parent. And she has a theory. It's easier for people to believe that someone is turning a child against a parent than it is to believe that a child is being abused. We don't want to believe that such dark, sinister things are happening, and it's hard to grasp that a parent is capable of abusing a child, but they are. She's right. Data from the U.S. Department of Justice shows that half of predators committing sexual assault against kids younger than six are family members. 
Tina herself was labeled a parental alienator when she tried protecting her daughters from their dad's predatory brother, who he was living with. That term was weaponized against her. He would follow me at the custody exchanges when I was trying to put my daughters back in the car and just chant, alienator, alienator, to the point that that word is triggering for me to this day. It took Tina six years to get protective custody. And it turns out that she was 100% right. A few years ago, her ex-brother-in-law was sentenced to 280 years in jail for sex crimes against dozens of kids, some as young as four. Claiming that a parent has brainwashed their kid into making false claims of abuse, that's become a go-to defense in family court. What we see in the family court system is that any attempt to hold an abuser accountable results in claims of alienation. It's predictable, it's playbook. This is a crisis in the family court systems worldwide. Accusations of alienation become the answer to everything, and that's what needs to stop. It's a strategy that goes back to the 1980s, when this psychiatrist named Richard Gardner came up with the theory. Gardner was an unpaid part-time clinical professor of child psychiatry at Columbia University. So not a bigwig, but it gave him enough credibility for his real moneymaker, and that was being hired as a forensic expert in child custody cases. He created a cottage industry out of defending men accused of child abuse. And in his zeal to defend fathers against abuse, he claimed without evidence that 90% of mothers were liars. They programmed their kids into repeating their lies. He diagnosed parental alienation as a psychological disorder. He wrote a ton of books, all of them self-published. And they had a massive sway on courts all over the country. In state after state, courts were impressed by Gardner's credentials and followed his advice by putting kids in the custody of their abuser and taking them away from their safe parent. Even when the mother's accusations were backed by police, medical records, testimony by teachers, social workers, they still sided with Gardner's theory. But Gardner himself took it even further. He actually defended the sexual abuse of children. He tried to normalize it. In another one of his self-published books called Sex Abuse Hysteria, Salem Witch Trials Revisited, he wrote, quote, pedophilia is considered the norm by the vast majority of individuals in the history of the world. He also wrote, there's a little bit of pedophilia in all of us. It's society's overreaction to pedophilia that causes children to suffer. Gardner died by suicide in 2003. His reputation at that time was just in the gutter. I mean, this British newspaper, The Independent, ran an obituary calling him the American Monster. The obituary called parental alienation one of the most insidious pieces of junk science to be given credence by U.S. courts in recent years. By then, it didn't matter what people thought of Gardner. That's because by 2002, lawyers had created their own industry out of it. 
all the way back in the 1990s, the Journal of the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry had predicted what was to come. They said that lawyers would have a field day with Gardner's theories. And that's just what happened. I met one of those lawyers. His name is Brian Ludmer. He's in Toronto, and he specializes in parental alienation. Ludmer is a true believer. He's a parental alienation evangelist. He talks at conferences and writes articles with titles like Managing the Voice of the Child in a Parental Alienation Case. He's convinced that tens of thousands of divorcing mothers and sometimes fathers would rather sacrifice their relationship with their own child rather than recant their false allegations of abuse. I have spoken to several people who never saw their child again or never saw their child for years and years, never had word about how their child was even. The child is not heard about ever again. They don't know where the child is living. And this goes on for years and years and years. People who who try and alienate a child from the other parent and then are subject to this sort of remedy, they don't, they don't go down easily. They're angry, they're vocal, they're organized, and they're aggrieved, and they're not getting their kids back. Why? Because they refuse to do the mea culpa. You need to surrender those narratives for us to be confident that you're not just going to re-alienate the kids. I really need to press the point, though, that some children are abused. If somebody had historically done something wrong that, that somehow got missed, even though it would have to be pretty serious, pretty severe for the children to react this way, and somehow got missed, or the court was concerned about it and then satisfied that it's not going to recur you you just it's all we have we we just we have to go with the decision of the court and obviously the parent that we're now placing the kids with is still going to be under a microscope if there's any recurrence any hint of that it will surface it will be reported And that decision will be reversed. I have to admit that shocked me. He's saying that if a parent does have a history of child abuse, the offending parent should still get custody because they should know they can't get away with it. And if abuse reoccurs, it's no big deal because the custody decision can always be reversed. Because now a judge is going to believe reports of child abuse. Anyway, from what I've learned, the offending parent is not the one who's put under a microscope. It's the child and the preferred parent. Even Ludmer said it. The best way to figure out if abuse allegations are lies is to cross-examine the child. Where did it happen? How did, who else was there? Who were you with immediately prior? Who were you with immediately afterward? What did you do the very next day? What did you do that night? Using that level of scrutiny, Ludmer has concluded in every single one of his cases that the child was lying. 
Have you had cases in which you find that the allegations are correct or true? This is so rare, like actual perversion of this type, that I've actually not had a case where it has been substantiated as true. How many are so sick that they would abuse their own children rather than somebody else's children, right? Because genetically, we have a protective instinct for our own children. This is extremely highly unlikely. And that reminded me of what Tina Swithin said. We don't want to believe that such dark, sinister things are happening. And it's hard to grasp that a parent is capable of abusing a child. But they are. What's actually unlikely is that kids would lie about abuse. Research has consistently shown that false allegations of child abuse by children are rare. I came across an academic who conducted a lot of that research. Joan Meyer is a clinical professor at George Washington University Law School. She founded the Domestic Violence Legal Empowerment and Appeals Project. It provides appellate representation in domestic violence cases. There is comparative data where studies have been done to look at what the rates of false allegations seem to be in general. Between 50 and 73 percent of child sexual abuse allegations in the context of custody litigation are considered likely valid. And are considered means by people such as custody evaluators or child welfare personnel. And so this is a very conservative rate of likely valid because those professionals are pretty notorious in my field for being very cautious and skeptical of child abuse claims that arise in custody litigation. Everyone treats the custody litigation context as an indication that you shouldn't trust these kinds of allegations. And so that's a fairly high rate in that context of likely valid, but we have instead in courts 2%. So you can see from this comparison that it is extremely likely that many, many sexually abused children are being sent to their sexual abuser by courts, which simply disbelieve it at a far greater rate than they should. I also talked to Catherine Barrett. She's a child forensic psychiatrist. She specializes in risk assessments of offenders with violent tendencies and sexually violent predators with antisocial personality disorder. She found that that cross-examining approach described by Brian Ludmer, that's inherently flawed. The history of the, the offending parent's personality dynamic and maladaptive interpersonal patterns, including things like poor impulse control, you know, lack of self-reflection, no accountability, all of these things are ignored because all the court is looking at is, I don't see evidence. And where the biggest mistake is in all of that is the personality dynamic, the personality organization, the behavioral components of the offending parent are really telling with regard to whether we should believe or what we would call, is this person a reliable historian? I was on a consultation today and I said, it's astounding to me that the court is even listening to this person who has proven over and over again, they've lied through their evaluations, they've lied on the stand, they've lied through a number of things, 
yet somehow that person gets equal, if not more of a voice than the non-offending parent. And so the psychology that's brought in to help the court understand, look at this person has maladaptive interpersonal dynamics. We cannot take this person at their word. That gets glossed over and they say, well, this person hasn't been diagnosed with a personality disorder. So, you know, what is the point here to which my, you know, answer is always, well, you don't need a personality disorder to be an abuser. When did that become, you know, the threshold of when someone can become an abuser? So they get caught on these nuances that really derail from what the, the actual issue is, which is we have a child who's been abused that has now become a pawn of the court because the father or the offending parent has raised the issue of alienation or something to distract from the real issue. And this works nine out of 10 times. On average, family court judges believe less than a third of child abuse claims by mothers. And a third of those mothers end up losing custody of their child. And that's when the father doesn't cross-claim alienation. When they do cross-claim parental alienation, half the time, the alleged abuser gets full custody. The cases that I have been on, that I have vetted, that I have read through documents that have understood the dynamics is these children are getting silenced. These parents who are not the abusive parents are getting penalized for raising the issue of sexual abuse. And the second that issue is raised, then the parent who brings that in is it most oftentimes the mother. If we're looking at a heteronormative couple, mother, father, okay, 97% of the time that will be the mother that comes in and says, listen, this has happened, here is my evidence, here is my proof, that the mother will be the one who gets penalized for even mentioning abuse. And what happens is then the trial gets derailed because the father then, he comes back with, this is parental alienation. I have never touched this child, this is all made up. And so then the focus becomes on the mother or the, the non-offending parent to be the one who holds the burden of proof. And children are now suffering and they are being blamed for having a voice around their abuse. So the abuse gets perpetuated because the offending parent has now made a case that this is false. And that becomes the narrative that nine out of 10 times is the one that becomes louder and attended to more. We're so conditioned to believe that police, judges, courts, they act on evidence and impartial expert testimony and common sense findings. But what I've discovered is that some judges do outsized damage. Some judges make really harmful decisions based on flimsy evidence or not at all, compromised expert testimony, and just their own gut instinct. A lot of times what happens, Sylvie, is the judge has already decided. It could be that they don't like the mother, one of the things that we see a lot as well is the offending parent does a really good job at making the non-offending parent look mentally ill. When you have been abused, coercively controlled, emotionally abused, narcissistically abused for X amount of time, and you have been isolated, manipulated, gaslit, exploited, that wears down someone's system. An emotional abuser wears someone down and they wear someone out. 
And think about your worst day, a day of sleep deprivation, a day where you're stressed out, you can barely function. Now amplify that by like a hundred. That is what a complex post-traumatic stress survivor feels on the daily. So to the court, to the opposing attorney, they're low-hanging fruit. They come in stress, they come in manic, they come in symptomatic, they come in with all these things. And so what is the go-to diagnosis? Well, the mother has borderline personality disorder. Some countries' governments are rejecting the label parental alienation altogether. As I explored in my last episode, a coercively controlling abuser will do all they can to maintain power over their victim, including using family courts to cause pain. But the Scottish government recognized that pattern, so officials there look for clues that a coercively controlling perpetrator is trying to cause harm by keeping a child from a safe, healthy parent. And when child abuse is alleged, they take the matter out of family court and put it where it belongs, criminal court. But California family courts still lag far behind when it comes to dealing with abuse allegations. There's been a huge push over the last several years to expose the damage done by abusive spouses' counterclaims of parental alienation. Groups like National Safe Parents have gotten federal bills passed, like Caden's Law. It motivates states to make sure custody laws protect at-risk kids. Caden's Law is supposed to restrict testimony to only appropriately qualified experts. And it's supposed to provide ongoing training to judges and court personnel on family violence. But advocates say it's still not enough. They say the judicial system allows judges to act with impunity. The California Commission on Judicial Performance is supposed to investigate complaints and discipline judges who cross the line. But the commission isn't getting high marks when it comes to holding judges accountable. The first audit in the commission's nearly 60-year history found that investigators ignored warning signs of ongoing misconduct in about a third of cases reviewed. In one example, the commission privately disciplined a judge three times for inappropriate remarks. But still, when an eighth complaint was made, the investigator dropped the case. That's because the complainant couldn't hand over a transcript or witnesses. You know, the things that would show up during an investigation. The audit was so damaging that a state assembly member drafted a bill to improve the Commission on Judicial Performance, also known as the CJP. Judges being primarily white male, especially as they get up the ranks and the ones that have been around a long time, to the extent that they feel above the law or they feel that their behavior can be whatever it is and nobody's holding them accountable. I I want them to worry about that. I I want them to know that there is oversight and they will be held accountable. That was former Assemblymember Mark Stone. He represented Santa Cruz Monterey Bay in the state legislature. He was also chairman of the Judiciary Committee in the Assembly. He said judges need to feel more heat. When judges are exceeding their authority, when judges are acting in their own self-interest against the public interest, when judges are not exhibiting judicial demeanor appropriately, which sounds a little 
subjective maybe, but it's actually fairly objective. Judges go through a lot of training and are expected to act in a particular way from the bench because of the grave responsibility they have. They're given singularly a lot of authority and a lot of responsibility. And CJP is the check and balance, if you will, over an inappropriate exercise of that authority. The public, I think, is not going to be confident in those systems unless they see those systems work and unless they know that punishments are appropriate, are well-investigated, well-researched, well-considered, and that judges are in a position not to be unnecessarily afraid of that call from CJP, but they should be afraid of that call from CJP. They should be concerned. Nobody is above criticism. Nobody's above censure. Nobody is above being held accountable for misdoings. On July 16, 2021, the California legislature authorized a committee to review the CJP. They need to issue a report and recommendations by March 31, 2023. So far, recommendations include reviewing past complaints to suss out chronic misconduct. It also recommended creating an investigation strategy to substantiate claims of misconduct and hiring a manager to supervise investigators. In the meantime, judges continue to force kids into the custody of parents they claim abuse them. And when I say force, I mean force. Remember that rabbit hole I started down way back when I first got this assignment? Well, prepare yourself for the next twist. You can imagine that a kid who says they're being abused isn't going to go to that parent willingly. So the judge doesn't just order the child into their custody. They also order the child to fix the damage to the relationship through a process called reunification therapy. The process begins by snatching a child from their preferred home and dragging them, sometimes kicking and screaming, into an awaiting car. Then they're taken far away, often out of state, to begin their brainwash deprogramming. In our next episode, we'll take a look at a video of two kids aged 15 and 11 being violently ripped from their grandmother's Santa Cruz home. That video went viral and it's galvanized a movement. We'll dive into that in our next episode. If you or anyone you know is suffering from domestic abuse, help is available. The National Domestic Violence Hotline provides confidential assistance to anyone affected by domestic violence through a live chat and a free 24-hour hotline at 800-799-7233. I'm Sylvie Sturm, and you've been listening to Civic. Civic comes to you from KSFP LP 102.5 FM in San Francisco. Our theme music is by John Dillon. Additional music was supplied by the Blue Dot Sessions. Our team includes producer Leanna Wilcox and contributor Mel Baker, who is also the program director at KSFP. Cynthia Chavez is our vocal coach. KSFP is a project of the San Francisco Public Press 
and nonprofit investigative newsroom. Find our reporting at sfpublicpress.org. Our staff includes publisher Lila LaHood, executive director Michael Stoll, development director Lisa Rudman, copy chief Kurt Aguilar, photojournalist and reporter Jessica Prado, and reporter Madison Alvarado. Civic airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 a.m. and 6 p.m. on KSFP. New episodes on Thursdays. Subscribe to our podcast by looking for Civic from the San Francisco Public Press wherever you get your podcasts. We're the one with San Francisco's skyline in our logo. Thanks for listening.